Welcome to Framerate, everyone. Welcome to our very live edition of Framerate. Uh, I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by... Patrick. And Dan. And today we're here to discuss First Man, starring Ryan Gosling, directed by Damien Chazelle, released in 2018. Yeah. And uh, this is a film that we've all seen multiple times. Maybe only one of us has seen it once. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, we thought it would be a great idea to share this frame rate episode with you guys live and discuss a film uh, we've been talking about as a threesome for quite a while now. So okay, A, threesome is a weird choice of words. I just want to throw that out there. Triumvirate. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. We're having a threesome tonight uh, live on Facebook. So, yeah, that's first. Second, I have seen this more than once, Jamie. Thank you very much. I know you were talking about me. <laughs> yes, I I've was. seen this movie like five times. And here's the thing. Before we get into the meat of this episode, I'm throwing meat out there too. Um, I want to make it clear. This is a, what's, gonna, what's going to happen tonight? Facebook friends. Yo, Patrick's is, gonna hate this, this, this movie. Gonna, this is going to turn into I'm the dissenting opinion. And I want to say this now. I am not the dissenting opinion. I love this movie. He I just actually don't think it's, I don't texted think it's us and said he'll be the dissenting opinion tonight. He so <laughs> was like, I have to throw my computer away after we talk about this movie because I hate it so much. I, he said I hate I like, the platform. I hate the director. I hate all the actors. <laughs> I hate America. No, listen, I, I love this movie. I don't think it's a 10 out of 10, but I love this movie. And I don't want anybody to think otherwise as we go forth tonight. Jamie, when Patrick hangs up, let's just stay on a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, this movie came out a year after, almost to the month after 2049. And I think I saw it first. And I was like, you guys got to see it. You guys got to see it. And then Dan saw it again. And then eventually Dan and I saw it in the same theater, but I couldn't sit next to him because he was having a virtual date watching it. So we we're in the same theater and I'm way back here and he's way up oh, there. Yeah. So it wasn't that, wasn't that nice. It wasn't that fun. Um, he's like, no, you can't sit next to me. <laughs> I didn't no, know about is, any of that. This is because I had a virtual date already set up. And Jamie had decided to not go. And then last minute, he decided to go. And so I was like, okay, but you're sitting over there because I'm on a date. I'm doing this thing. <laughs> With somebody was, who wasn't actually there. Before so social distancing. Yeah, <laughs> I just want yes. to throw that out there. Look, I take, I take uh, virtual dates seriously. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. <laughs> that's, that's how I am. So let me, who should we start with? Let's start with you, Dan. What were your first oh, impressions of? Man. First man. Well, um, I will very, very briefly um, get personal for a second just to explain the context in my life. But, you know, I went through like a separation divorce recently in the last couple of years and 2049 came out sort of at the beginning of that period. And then First Man came out about a year later at the end of that period. So there was this very interesting Ryan Gosling parentheses in my life where film and film exploration was like extra meaningful to me because I was trying to find some meaning in my life in certain directions, et cetera, et cetera. trying to find peace, all of the, all those things. And of course the two films both deal with sort of these tragic relationships. And so um, I really, really connected with that. So I think first man came out like the week that I was going through the end of this period. So I was, you know, emotionally a little, uh, frail should we should we say and um i went with my friend kyle give him a shout out and uh 
Kyle kind of likes to pre-party. I don't normally drink at a movie or before a movie, but we went in like a couple of drinks deep and probably had a couple in the theater. So, you know, just to compound my emotional state. So, I mean, I was just like, the movie, the emotional parts of the movie were just like ripping my heart out. I was like so in it with the characters and so in it with what, um, even though I'm a very different person from Neil Armstrong and obviously he's very introverted, albeit they may have exaggerated that a little bit for dramatic effect in some parts of the movie, but still, I don't know what it's like to be a person like that. And you can see the strife that it caused in his relationship. So I connected so much with all that personal stuff that to be perfectly honest, by the time Apollo 11 was landing on the moon, spoiler alert, um, I like didn't even care about the moon landing. Cause I was like, no, I want more of this family stuff. I want to see more what's going on internally. And, and like, I want to explore that more and his relationship with his kids and stuff. Because again, it was so well done that it was just totally gripping to me. So that was kind of, I have many, many more thoughts about the film, but I remember that being my connection the first time I saw it and, and a very like intense feeling. And those are like the characters and, and the parts that I really related to the first time. What about you, Patrick? Should I go or do you want to go? I can go. I fucking hate this movie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yo, um, Patrick hates this movie. <laughs> I fucking hate it. No, I, 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 uh, I remember. So we're talking about like our first viewing of it. Okay. So the first viewing I had of First Man was an interesting one for uh, a whole variety of reasons. Not the least of which is that I saw it alone the first time I saw it. Um, and as somebody who's married to a fellow movie fan, you know, I, we try to go together as much as we can to films, but there are some times where I'm like, this is something that I need to get to and it's hard to find a night we can get coverage with the kids. So like, you know, I went um, alone and I could only get to a, uh, a pretty late screening of it because it was just like a super busy time in my life. And um, so I went to, I saw it alone at like a 10 o'clock showing, which I, lo- I don't know about you guys. I love going to late night showings of things. Some of, some of my favorite 2049 showings were going alone to like very late night, like the last showing of the evening and just like getting out under the stars and walking home and being kind of like just surrounded by quiet. I, I love seeing movies like that. So First Man was like that for me. And I saw it in, uh, in an empty movie theater, um, sort of just sitting there alone, totally just like, you know, enveloped by this film that was just extraordinary. And, um, and then just sort of as a side, kind of a funny story. I don't remember if I even told you guys this, but on the way home, I picked up a hitchhiker, which, which is something that I've never done before or since. But I was in like a place where, you know, I just seen first man and I was very emotional. And there was a guy whose truck had broken down by the side of the road on the way home. And I got out and I like kind of parked and I talked to him for a minute. Um, and I was like, hey, like I can like help you if you want to like get a ride to, uh, you know, a gas station. We can like find a place to get you some like, you know, gas to fill up the, so I drove around with him. There were no gas stations open in this like rural area. We drove around for like 45 minutes that night at like 1.30 in the morning. Um, and, uh, and it was just, and we talked about the moon landing. Like we talked about the Apollo 11 mission. We talked about the film and, um, you know, it's just this random human moment that I think was really heightened just like the moments we have on this show are by a mutual love of film and history and getting to connect on something like that. And it's a movie that definitely puts you in that headspace, I think, of like, sort of out of body a little bit. Um, I'll say the thing to me that sticks out most still to this day is the X-15 sequence in the beginning, which I think is just like, I, I mean, that's, that's just, uh, that is just an extraordinary sequence for, for a whole variety of reasons. Character not really being one of them because you don't know the characters yet very well and you know, you're not really emotionally invested in that way. But in terms of just like realism and putting you in this just extraordinary moment 
in not only the film, but in history, because we were pushing the envelope of what you could do and like what happens if you get close enough to the you know outer limits of Earth's gravitational field that you start ballooning off the surface of it, you know, like, which is just an, an astounding emotional metaphor for like what happens at the outer reaches of what we think was capable and, and you know, what happens when we start to let go, um, which of course sets up the whole grief metaphor that runs through the whole entire movie, which is of course basically an elegy for his daughter. Um, I think uh, that it's a, it's a really emotional film and I think it's extraordinarily well-crafted. The problems that I have with it are largely just in that I feel like some aspects of it don't go far enough for me. Um, but there's something to be said for restraint. There's something to be said for quiet. And, um, and I think sometimes that works really well too. So, you know, I think it's a great film. Jamie? He thinks it's a great film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, I, I do think it's a great film. I think it's, I remember seeing it and I, someone told me, couple years ago they said Jamie you watch movies and listen to music with your heart and that's certainly how I experienced First Man Um, and it was just this lyrical my favorite word cerebral entry into this man's life without much talking so he was emoting but he wasn't talking Neil Armstrong is very interior and so um, it was a powerful experience to have to or to be persuaded to experienced the loss of this man's daughter um, with him and um, his stages of grief and uh, juxtaposed to this incredible mission he's going on. But really, I, I never saw the film. When I think of the film, I don't even think of the Apollo mission. I don't think of where they're going. I think of what he's going through. I think of what his kids are going through. I think of his emotional struggle. That to me is what the film was about. I said this when the film came out because I think we did talk about it briefly on a couple episodes of uh, Shoulder of Orion. But yeah, it just spoke so incredibly powerful to me uh, or powerfully to me. And the score I thought was amazing. Um, and I remember not, I listened to that score almost every day for like three months. Um, that was I haven't listened to it in a while, but um, I thought it was really powerful. Ryan Gosling, I think, is completely underappreciated. He's underrated. He has so much talent, but it's very, uh, you have to really pay attention to his choices that he makes as an actor. He's not this, you know, he's not your typical um, method actor. Everything is internal for him. That's who he is. And um, I think, as someone who I'm an emotional person, but I'm also very internal about it. Very few people have seen me get visibly emotional. You two probably being the exception. Um, I really appreciate um, what he brought to that character, especially as we become men, what, what it is to be a man in the Western world. Um, whether it's in the 60s or whether it's today, we're dealing with those same issues, how to completely express our emotions and our feelings um, and why so many of us try and keep that down and, and hide it or or keep it out of sight so that people see us be strong. Like that's it's everything he's going through. Um, and he's the most powerful when he's the most emotional, I think. So it was a film that really touched me personally. Just jumping in for a second on Ryan Gosling. And there's a school of acting that like Clint Eastwood comes from and, and Ryan Gosling is very much in that mold where 
an actor, Stephen Queen actually, Stephen Queen is famous for doing this. Uh, on a set, he will basically tell his co-stars and he'll tell the director, I'm not going to say the following lines. I'm going to cross them out, but I will say them with my look. Like you will know what I'm saying, but I'm specifically not going to say it. I don't know if Ryan Gosling actually does that. Like a lot of actors literally do. Like Stephen Queen, like I was saying, is famous for, for doing this on film sets. Um, I don't know if he literally does that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did, or at least while they were doing rehearsals for the film, if he was like, how much can be cut of the dialogue? Because in many of his most effective roles, going all the way back to things like Half Nelson, which is, I think is another really under kind of forgotten film that was really amazing too. A lot of his great roles, he uh, disappears for pretty big swaths of it and just sort of becomes like just a silent observer. And yet there's never any doubt that he's incredibly engaged in it. And, um, and I think, Actors who do that well understand, and Marlon Brando, I think, has kind of set the the tone for that whole idea. Um, is that like is that it's not you're not reading poetry, like you're not there to be declaring things, you're not there to be like forcing your way into people's heads. Like you, you are there in a visual me a fundamentally visual medium to interpret and communicate a story. And if you rely only on language to do that, if you rely only on, you know, being um loud and being you know, overtly emotional with things, then then you're kind of doing a disservice to the audience, I think. And, and I think part of why we love Ryan Gosling so much is he really understands that. And First Man, what's interesting with First Man, and part of my issue with it, I think, is that to me, of all of the humans on planet Earth in the late 1960s, one human was chosen to be the first person to get out of the lunar lander and step foot on the moon, right? Like he was the only, he was literally the only person that was chosen to do that. So the, the personality characteristics that would lend themselves to that, to me, and this is not to say anything about the film, but to me feel more like personality characteristics that would come from somebody who isn't just kind of repressing emotion all the time, but actually is able to deal with it and kind of move on. And I feel like there's this like kind of undercurrent of repression in his character in First Man that that to me kind of threw me off a little bit. It didn't feel like, and, and so I feel like when he throws his daughter's necklace on the West Crater on the moon, um, I really came out of the movie. Like I really came out of the movie. And I know that I'm not supposed to because it's the emotional, you know, apotheosis of the story. And it's kind of a beautiful cinematic moment. But to me, like that, it feels so anathema to who Neil Armstrong was as a, person that he would bring this artifact from earth and kind of throw it on the, on the lunar surface. Um, it's like such an overtly emotional thing that would have at the end of the day added weight to his outfit, you know? And I, I, and I feel like to me, it didn't seem totally believable. That being said, it's a film. It's not a documentary, right? Um, liberties can be taken with it. And, uh, and to me, that kind of pulled me out a little bit of the, of the story because it felt a little bit like Damien Chazelle was kind of like, twisting my emotional knob a little bit and being like, like, Oh, the story wasn't powerful enough. And you probably forgot how important his daughter was to him. So like, here, I'm going to like do this thing that's kind of impossible and I'm going to make you kind of, um, I'm going to make you cry. And, and the second I saw that because the whole rest of the movie is so understated and so quiet, it felt a little bit cheap to me. And, and it's in a movie that wasn't cheap whatsoever. That's, that's so I, that is really my issue with it. It's that in the score, which, which I, um, I, I personally don't like very much. The, to me, that's basically it. Everything else I think about it is just extraordinarily well done. Let me uh, step in and destroy Patrick's points from three different directions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree with you about 10% on that scene, Patrick. 
but I probably used to agree with you about 50% on my very first viewing of the film. Um, A, I'll concede the very small point that to have him um, lift up the reflective thermal part of his visor during that scene, that pulled me out a little bit. Cause I was like, okay, that's a hundred percent for the audience. Like there's no reason he would be doing that. He's on the moon, he's in the sun or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that part I did not buy, but that's a very minor detail. And again, you have to allow for some adjustments for the medium that we're talking about. And the medium is film. So obviously seeing his face in that moment is kind of important, but I felt the same way you did. I was like, Ooh, that's crossing the line. I think that they're taking too much liberty with the story since they don't know what happened up there to be able to say that's what Neil did. That being said, I then bought the deep, bought the 4k and like watched it, watched all the background stuff, made it through all the commentary and stuff. So Josh Singer wrote the screenplay based on uh, First Man, the book by James Hansen, who was really the first and only person to get, you know, 70, 80 hours of interviews out of Neil Armstrong. So aside from maybe some of his family, nobody knew him better than Hansen. Um, and that's debatable because, again, he really did never talk about uh, – Muffy, which was Karen's uh, nickname, his daughter that died with his wife, like literally his wife still probably to this day doesn't really know how he felt about it. At least, at least publicly well, that's she's dead. Point. Right. Sorry. They're, they're both dead now. Yeah. Um, but when the but, movie came out, she'd only been dead for like a two months, right? Then she passed away in 2018. Right. And she did get interviewed or at least, okay. His sister, New Armstrong's sister, let me get to my point. Yeah. Did get interviewed by uh, Josh Singer. And he addresses this specific point because I think he wrote the scene and then took it to Neil Armstrong's sister and was like, Hey, I'm kind of taking some Liberty here. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I'm taking a little bit of Liberty here because we know that Neil Armstrong never either never disclosed what was in his PPE, his, his little one pound, two pound bag of personal stuff, right? Like buzz brought some of his wife's jewelry. We don't know what Neil Armstrong took and the record was destroyed somehow or lost. So we will, and now he's dead. So we'll never know what Armstrong took with him. Um, and while I agree with Patrick, that that's a person that that's also that space was allotted for personal things. So I wouldn't be surprised if Armstrong was like, okay, yeah, I'm putting some personal things in this. That's like what it's designed for, right? He can't put more fuel in it as he kind of jokes in the press conference. Um, and, and we know Buzz verified that he did walk over to a crater and kind of spend some time by himself. When Josh Singer asked, if you hear a cat, that's Reggie. When uh, Josh Singer asked his uh, Neil Armstrong's sister, is this plausible enough that he would have done this? And she read the script and she said, absolutely 100%. He never said that. I don't know that he did it, but I think that's totally something Neil would have done. And so I, I think what you wrote here is... Um, is plausible and 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 in line with his character and his personality. Once I read that, I was like, okay, I'm fine with the scene. I can just let go of it now. I'm not going to nitpick this. Like, even though the tone is a little different than a lot of the other scenes, and even though you got to give them, you know, they lifted up the visor so you can see Gosling's face. Um, that really sold me, not just on that scene, but on Josh Singer's screenplay. Um, because again, if you and if you go beyond the screenplay and just the editing, the just about everything. I mean, I can count on like three fingers the things they did wrong in the film. Aside from subjective opinions about whether you like the score or not, I'm saying I'll talk about it. There's like a couple of goofs or mistakes in the movie, but they're very limited for such an incredible technical film. 
And I think it's very obvious to get onto bigger points that, and th this I always find important, right? There's like how you feel about a film and then all the technical prowess and all that stuff. But also, um, did the filmmaker and the writer accomplish what they were trying to accomplish? If they stated a goal or in post interviews, they say, well, what I was trying to do is tell this kind of story. I think you have to watch it also somewhat from that lens. And from what I could see on singers interviews and, and reading the book from Hanson, they a hundred percent nailed exactly what they were trying to portray. So I gotta, I gotta give them a hundred on that one. And to me, the film is, I give it a 10 out of 10 because again, the small things that I would have done differently or disagree with are just like not big enough to sway my opinion. Um, and I do like the, the score myself, but, um, yeah, I, I found that that was a really nice thing to read because I was happy to find that out, you know, that I was like, oh, okay, like his sister actually says this is plausible. I'm going to take his sister's word for it. That's interesting because I don't even, when I think of that movie, that's the last thing I think of. I don't even, that, that part of the film doesn't even, it's so much more than that to me. I mean, I get we all have a moment maybe where something pulls you out. I have probably a moment in some film somewhere where that happens to me. Um, I don't, his emotional journey is so powerful. That's like the last little bit, like, I don't even, doesn't even process. You know, it's, it's uh, to me, like one of the most emotional things I've ever heard somebody say about the experience of being on the moon, I think it was Jim Lovell who said it. I think he says this in the podcast, Dan, that, that you got me into 13 minutes to the moon from BBC, which is terrific. Uh, if it wasn't level, it was somebody else. But anyway, uh, he says that at one point when they were round, oh no, this was on Apollo 8, when they were rounding the back of the moon, coming around the dark side of the moon, um, and the earth came back, he was able to fit the earth under his thumb. You know? And it was like a really understated comment, and I, I, I've, I've been thinking about that for weeks since I first heard it, about what an extraordinary thing for a human to experience that is. That like every single, the totality of the human experience of everything that we know and everything we've ever cared about can be just eclipsed by a thumb for a moment. Um, I guess the only reason I'm saying that, and I don't want to harp on this because the movie is, Jamie, you're right, way more than just this one thing at the end. But I, I guess since we're talking and we have like one divergence of opinion on this movie, we might as well kind of talk about it for a moment. To me, the whole movie is such an incredible exercise in realism and in restraint and in being, being respectful to the, to the viewer and giving us like so many benefits of the doubt that we're going to remember things and that we're going to be there for the ride and that we're going to pay attention to what gets said offhand in the dark room somewhere, you know? And then to have at this part of the movie that is already so fucking climactic because it's like the best moon landing sequence. I mean, there's like nothing like that ever put to film before. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment. And Dan, I'm sure you can tell us a lot of reasons why it works so well, you know, cinematographically. Um, and like, there's like, I like, there's no part of me that was not 1000% engaged in that moment. And, and knowing that his daughter was with him in that moment and that like, this is where we were going and in the, and in the power of that moment, as soon as he flipped up the visor, when he got out, I was saying, please don't do a video montage, please don't do a video montage. And then they do a fucking flashback sequence. And I was like, what is going on with this? And then he just like throws the CG necklace out and it just, it just felt like, it just felt so uh, juvenile compared to other decisions that were made because if a, if, a, if a viewer is that far into this movie and doesn't get what his emotional journey has been about then like what the hell have they been paying attention to you know what I mean like I, to, to me it just it just seems like I was getting slapped in the head with a sledgehammer that being said we, we have a difference of opinion on this and, and I, I'm not 
angry about it at in the least because I love this movie. It's just for, it just it pulled me out, and, and every time I get to that sequence now, because I do, I own the 4K. I do watch this movie quite a bit because I do love this movie. When I get to that part, I always kind of like go, kind of wish that this hadn't happened. That being said, I do think if we can, I would love to talk about the landing sequence because I just think that's like, you know, that was something that before I saw the movie, people had a lot of people had told me was extraordinarily well done. And um, when I saw it, I was still blown away by it. I thought that like the, uh, the, the practical effects that they used and the fact that like that they were able to accomplish so much with so little digital help. And um, it just felt like just extraordinary. So Dan, since I know you've seen the special features multiple times for this thing, um, can you tell us a little bit about how they pulled that off? Um, yeah, I would, I would back up for just a second because, um, introducing, I can't get my cat to shut up tonight, introducing Reggie. It's okay. He, he really loves this movie too. And really wants to jump in with his opinion, but, um, Reggie come here and stop being a butt. So I, I would back up a little bit and just talk in general about technically how they made the film, including X-Esteme sequences and Gemini, and then we'll get to the moon and, and, and I can bring you in for that one. But um, I think because the scope was so technical on things that they were doing, I think it's really important to talk about. In, in other episodes, we may only talk about like emotionally how a movie makes us feel, but I think at this one, it's really important to really praise the accomplishment of the filmmakers here. And you guys have heard this conversation because I've had this talk with you many times, but for the audience, I want to kind of, I wrote down some of the points and reiterated them. First of all, any kind of space movie at all one of the things the filmmaker has to contend with is the spacesuits right aside from filming and the fact that they got to be in this bulky things but just their faces right they got a visor they got this helmet their face is dark just all these problems normally those problems are often those problems are solved through cgi right so take gravity for example right that's one where classically the actors had no visors and they just CGI'd the visors in later. Why? Because you can't control the reflections. So the chances that a camera gets reflected in the visor is super high. You got to fix that in post. It's just a pain in the ass. If you don't have the visor and just CGI it, which is not a bad solution. That's actually a great use of CGI, right? Because it's just a small thing. You're controlling the reflections. The reflections in the actor's eyes, same thing. Um, the other thing that most of the time they do is that when you're surveying a planet or whatever, whatever you're doing, you're in orbit. Um, that's all green screen. So the actors may have like an X drawn or something where they're saying, okay, when this passes, that's the uh, Athena passing the, the window or something like that. But the actors have to use their imagination to make all of that up, which inevitably I think most actors say, well, that takes away from your acting. And more specifically, they would say when they don't have to do that and they work on something that has a lot of practical sets and ships and whatever, they're really just in that place where they can just act. Um, and then lastly, and a, a small uh, factor is lighting their face, right? From Prometheus to Gravity to all these other visor spacesuit movies, you always have these dumb LED lights at like chin level that point into the actor's face. And you're like, that looks cool because it lights his face up with blue or orange or green or whatever, but that will be the most obnoxious thing ever if you were actually working in a suit, right? You don't want a light shining in your face. So they designed um, their own software system in this film. And so you can watch the behind the scenes. The X-15 had a specific simulator-like rig with hydraulic pumps and everything to move it all over the place, um, as well as the capsules, the Apollo 11 capsule. They had different sort of, you could call them like 
live action simulators basically. And then what they had on the LED, on these giant LED screens that they were projecting for the earth, the moon, whatever they were looking at is um, software timed to the movement on the rigs. So without having to work too, they didn't have to do that manually, obviously. That's all set and synced. And I mean, they were making actors throw up and like get dizzy and stuff. Like those things are really rotating and moving around and you can see it. Um, and you're taking care of all those problems. So they could use real visors, all of the lighting reflections in the visors, in their eyeballs, um, and the light lighting up the actors' faces took care of those three lighting issues. And then of course the actors don't have to pretend they're looking at the moon because they are looking at the moon. And I mean, the camera filmed the same LED screen. So obviously it looks amazing and looks real. So the actors really could feel immersed um, in that situation. Um, and so you see that for the X-15 scene, you see it for, was it Gemini 8 that they were on when they went up to meet the Athena? You see it on that one and then Apollo 11, right? There's sort of three ship cockpit based uh, scenes. Go ahead, Butch. I think you mean Gemini. Gem Why do they Gem all say that shit? Gemini. It sounds, Gemini. Uh, Gemini. It, what is up with that? It's just 60s pronunciation. I've looked into it. That's just how they used to say it. I mean, you, you know, hear it on, on, uh, on the documentary, to, on the Apollo right? 11 documentary. I, people talk Gemini, differently yeah. back then. I mean, in films, yeah. most of the time people are using a mid-Atlantic accent, which is not a real accent that anyone used in real life. So the film is just, you know, it's, it's like that. I um, mean, they're trying to depict the 60s. So yeah. now that Go takes back. us to the moon landing scene, right? Where they're in the LEM, which had like standing room only, super uncomfortable, cold, all that shit. Made out um, of actual garbage. <laughs> it was, it was like, right. That's um, so rickety. And then uh, I'll let Patrick describe the scene a little bit since he wants to talk about it. But um, as a general thing, one thing the actors were doing, so first of all, when they're playing audio from uh, Mission Control, most of the time that's the original audio. They didn't have actors reread that stuff. So when he lands and he says the eagle has landed, he's repeating the exact script. And then um, when you hear the guy say like, um, they say, uh, Roger that eagle, you know, we you had a bunch of guys turning blue in the face over here. Like that's all original recording from the Apollo missions, which is great because NASA has all that stuff to free it and available. You just have to dig through it. Um, on top of that, Gosling and the other astronauts, I believe, had an astronaut, a former astronaut or current astronaut in their ear telling them exactly how to move the knobs and adjust the switches at the right time and what information they were going to be getting and what they were going to be saying. And they rehearsed all of that. So in terms of what you're seeing them do, it's all as accurate as you could possibly do it. Um, and rewinding for a second, on top of that, they had unprecedented access to NASA. So very famously, um, the crawler scene, when the Saturn V crawler comes out, and Neil and Buzz and a bunch of people are sitting there talking shit to each other. That's the real NASA crawler. It just didn't have a Saturn V on top of it because the camera never pans up because you just got these giant treads the size of a house going past you. That's the real NASA crawler. I mean, imagine how expensive it is just to lug that thing out and move it. Um, and then the scene where they are getting in the Apollo 11 van to drive over from what, you know, the training center or whatever out to the platform, they use the real van. Those are the real hallways. That's everything is exactly where it happened. If you compare it to the real video, I'm sure they nailed the camera down to like the same inch spot in the place so that you could see everything exactly as it happened. Right. And you can clearly see, so for people, we should do a whole frame rate on this documentary at some point, cause I know Dan and I are obsessed with it, but the Apollo 11 documentary that came out last year and it, it, it was part of the commemoration for the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing it has much of this footage in it because this stuff was all shot on 
fucking 70 millimeter color film, which is just crazy. It's crazy that we have this historical moment preserved in like the highest information density format on the in the world at that time. And it's all been digitally remastered in 4K. So it's like watching it like it's actually, you're experiencing it. It is an extraordinary documentary, but it has all this footage Dan's talking about. So they have like the Scooby-Doo wagon carrying them with their jetpacks on. It looks like <laughs> fucking out of a sci-fi movie, right? And then they go to the elevator and they go up forever because it's 300 feet, you know, until you get to the, uh, to the command capsule it's just it's just an extraordinary thing and you can see in first man that they recreated it recreated it so faithfully that it is down to like they had the same like there's no dolly like it's like they're they're they have shoulder mounted cameras and they're walking with the people these big heavy cameras it is uh, it is just amazing and yet it never comes across slavish there's a lot of movies out there like the hitchcock remake of uh, of psycho which they came out in like 90 what is it 99 i don't know jamie will know something like that um, where it's like a shot for shot remake and it's just like it's it's just like pointless it's so clear why they were doing that you know um with this movie it never feels like that because in this movie history and narrative are like they're always right at that liminal space between the two so for example during the landing sequence during the 13 minutes right when you hear the actual radio chatter going on it doesn't feel like you're listening to historical stuff because it feels like you're just living it as it's unfolding right and then, of course, you listen to it because this is also all in that documentary, which, again, go see Apollo 11. You, it, we have all of that audio existing perfectly well. So all of those incredible moments, including error commands that were beeping off. Like, I mean, this was, it was, it was- 1202 alarm. 1202 alarm, right? Like, this was something that was on the razor's edge of being able to happen or not. And all of this stuff exists. And because Chazelle and his team did such a great job of understanding the source material well enough to recreate it in a way that felt faithful. It never feels contrived or it never feels like an exercise. It just feels like this is the story and we're like living it. And it's just, it's just crazy how well they did that. I think. Yeah. It's really incredible. I mean, uh, if you want to talk about the moon landing sequence a little bit more, it's like so dramatic. And I think that that track on the soundtrack is, I think the most moving, most dramatic track. I mean, it's really intense and done specifically for that reason, um, which one could argue you could have used something more subtle, but I mean, I love the track. I think it goes great, but just like, and you see the reason why Armstrong was picked to do what he did, which is something that even Buzz, who is, you know, has a big ego and he's famous for it, um, will admit. And they said, I forget who said this exactly, but they said, nobody handled emergencies like Armstrong. And we're talking about people who were all trained professional combat pilots, test pilots. I mean, Armstrong got shot down over Korea. All these other guys are fighter pilots uh, for the most part, I think. So um, within that context, I mean, I talk to pilots a lot. You know, the stories of pilots who unfortunately ended up in a crippled aircraft and had to crash, had people in the back, whatever. I mean, without fail, pilots are the people who will calmly direct a plane into a field and crash it and die with everyone on board because they know it's better than crashing it into a neighborhood. Meaning they will maintain their calm and all of their technical skills and all of their ability down to the very bitter end to do what's right and what's safest and what's best for everyone. So we're talking about very calculated and controlled people and even they were like armstrong was just incredible um and so these alarms and these issues that they were having you know who knows if anybody else would have been in command of that spacecraft i mean they're all competent astronauts but they could have had to abort right they had a limit 
what they were reaching and their fuel limit, right, is an abort limit, meaning that's not the moment where you're going to die on the moon. It's the moment where you have to hit abort and the engines have to start up and get you back to um, meet up with the command module because if you continue to try and land, you will not have the fuel to leave. You will run out of fuel and you will You'll never be- get off the lunar exactly. surface again. Like so ever. Yeah. Those aborts are set up to save their lives, uh, assuming the mission's going to fail, but they're going to save the astronauts' lives. Like that's what they were kind of faced with. And yet Neil stuck to it, even though they were way off of their original landing site, they were passing a crater and boulders the size of cars. And they're like, crap, we can't land here. Um, they landed with an extra 18 seconds of fuel to spare or 12 seconds to spare, something crazy like that. So, I mean, and again, I think Jamie, to, to finish up, uh, Jamie was talking about the roles Gosling has picked. And while I don't think he has quite yet gotten to the point where he's had the diversity and roles of like a Robert Pattinson or a um, Heath Ledger, I'm sure he will. So far, he's done a really great job, I think, of blending his natural ability and his acting skills with the roles that he's that he picks. And so him really acting with his eyes in this film um, was perfect for what they were the part of Armstrong's personality that they were trying to depict. So again, I think they're, uh, and, and to go back to Chazelle, he's like 35 years old. He's younger than me. So he's I mean, my really, age. I know he's, he's three, two months three, older than I am. Ma- he's made three major films. Like it's, and they're all, and great. won an Academy award at age 32 for La La Land, which is fucking nuts. Right. Well, and first man won a couple of Oscars too, but yeah, I mean, it's but, I mean, for best director, like he won right, the, right, right, right. the Oscar for best director at 32. Right. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. It's not, but um, yeah, Jamie, you want to jump in? You got anything on those scenes that kind of come up for you or pretty much covered it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll try and talk less. I get too excited about this movie. Um, well, let me throw something I think, out there before. Well, I mean, on. I think well, it's, oh, yeah. it's, an astonishing technical achievement, no doubt, no doubt. I, I think I, I, you guys really appreciate, certainly you, Dan, the technical aspects. And for me, if it was like a creature film, I would get more into that kind of thing. But because that type of thing is sort of beyond my realm of not understanding, but I just sort of take it all in as one. Um, it's great to hear you guys discuss it in minutia. Um, because I love process and the process by which they created this film is unfathomable. It's, it's, it doesn't even how they made this film is crazy. Uh, the, the dedication to um, every little tiny detail. It's, you know, I mean, really this is just the work of a true artist. It really is. And to really create, I mean, it helped that it is a world that was, around at some point so they're they're recreating what was already existing so that they had that to work with um but sometimes we've seen many films or shows where they're recreating the 60s or the 70s and it looks like it's one big set and it looks like all the costumes are new and it doesn't look lived in this film and also i think it's um of note to mention that first man feels like it was shot on 16 millimeter it's really it feels really authentic. Um, there's a scene in the in the film where um, Neil Armstrong goes outside of his house, and it's like a, it's at night, and he's with a friend of his, or they're coming home he's from a party night. or whatever. Yeah, and you see the moon, and it's just this moment in time that feels like someone found footage from 1960, whatever, and they use it in the film. It's it it it's. One of those films, there's another film, which is a vastly different time, but it's almost famous, that feels authentically 
70s. Um, and to really capture uh, a moment in time like that, to make it feel like it's something we remember, even though we don't have memory of it, that's difficult to do. So, you're talking about Boogie Nights? No, Almost Famous. What's the movie you're talking about? <laughs> oh, almost Famous. Oh, I thought you were saying the movie was Almost Famous. I yeah, didn't catch that Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. you're right, though. I, th- I noticed that right away. And even though it's a little strange to make cameras look like they are 60s cameras, even in a scene where we know there were no cameras, for example, the inside of the X-15, when you look at the sky, it's very grainy. It's got this Mm -hmm. texture to it. It's very specific to, um, I guess, the 16 millimeter cameras, but definitely cameras that would have been available at that time. Not, it wasn't filmed digitally, right? It was filmed on film. And I think that was a great, great move. Um, Even if, sometimes a little bit metaphorical uh, or intangible, but I think it, it gives a really cool authenticity uh, to the film and to the scenes for sure. Um, I was going to ask you guys, I don't want to get too in the weeds um, comparing Ad Astra to this film, but I think there are just some inevitable comparisons, both being very like, aside from the action scenes, they're both kind of slower, more atmospheric move, uh, movies where they take the time to let it breathe. Um, one of my main complaints about Ad Astra is I thought there was too much voiceover narration from the main character, Brad Pitt. And by contrast, that's one of the things I really liked about First Man is that they're really making you soak it in and you have to figure out for yourself what you think is going through the character's mind or fill it with your imagination. I mean, it, it almost actually allows you to put yourself in their shoes a little bit easier because especially if you viewed it more than once, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to necessarily put yourself in their shoes. You can just think, wow, a lot of POV shots. It's like, what would, how would I feel? You know? And it's like when they, when they lock him in to the Apollo 11 um, to the capsule at the top of Saturn V. I mean, that scene goes on forever. You see the fly and they're just like, hang, or that, that might've been, sorry, the, uh, that might've been the Gemini 8 scene, but still they're just really taking their time, making you feel like this is what that character would have felt, that person would have felt. Very similar to the K scene in 2049 where he's, he finds the horse and digs it up, right? It's like three minutes long, like unnecessarily a long scene where you know exactly what's going to happen. This is historical, so you also know exactly what's going to happen, yet it makes sense and really allows you to be there with the character. I I, I love that style, you know, when they can let something breathe like that. Which again is is why I think at the emotional climax of the movie, it, it fails me a little bit because it, it, I think it's just like the antithesis of that. And, and I, I have to say, like, for me, what you were saying sounds like such a great argument for keeping the visor down, you know, because at, the, at that moment, like, I, I actually think there's something so incredibly poetic about that idea that at the climax of the movie, you can't even see his face, but you are so locked into his head that you don't need to, and that it universalizes that moment. Like, I, I just think that that scene, like, it doesn't ruin it for me, obviously, but it's just like a, it's a sticking point. I, it's, it's funny, in terms of Ad Astra, I know um, people compare them a lot. I know you, got, you guys both do quite a bit. Um, I don't, and I- I, I don't, don't know, know if I compare it. I mean, I think that there's some tonal qualities that they share, absolutely, but I think they're vastly different films. I mean, I one mean, of them is a but science they also, fiction they're, movie for one thing, they're, ex- right? like, they're explorations of- in some ways, what it is to be a man. So I think that they share that. One's experiencing grief, the other's experiencing loss, and they they share in the same stock. So I think that there's definitely some um, narrative similarities there, but I think one goes off and they just they veer off into completely 
different directions. And that's in my mind, from my perception, that's where it stops. I don't, I don't ever like, actually, I, I've been listening to the score of Ad Astra over and over. And in my opinion, that score blows away the score for the first man any day of the week. And again, it's all, it's all down to opinion and how we interpret those things 100%. And I do, I, do, I do get why people compare those movies because I think that there is a, obviously similarities kind of into the, the pitch of the film and into the fact that like they both have like an astronaut on the cover and you know, it's like a, there's like a central protagonist who's like going through a journey. Like I, and they came out within like a year and a half of each other. Um, but they, but they, they feel like just tonally so different. Cause one is this like historical borderline documentary presentation of, of something that happened 50 years ago. And the other one is this like incredibly fantastical sci-fi adventure that takes place in the future. And it's like this, you know, kind of wild exploration to the far reaches of our solar system. I just, I just feel like they're, they're very different films, but, um, the voiceover doesn't bother me in, in, at Astra. And, uh, and I think it's because I, I'm not like a voiceover person at all. I, I actually, as we've talked about in discussing Blade Runner, I, I dislike voiceover a lot. Um, I think the way it's deployed in at Astra it doesn't detract anything for me because I think, I, I mean, maybe part of the difference is that we know what happened with the lunar landing. Like we kind of know the broad strokes of what was going on. Um, and at Astra, we're watching a fictional event unfold and like it's kind of giving us gateways into what's transpiring um, and into this person's head who was not real, you know? So like it's kind of a gateway into what he was doing. So that might be why it wasn't as um, problematic for me. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not crazy that there's a voiceover in that Astra. But the other qualities of it make, make, you know, make me love it actually a little more than First Man. But I, I do think that they're both like incredibly well-made films. And I think in terms of craftsmanship, First Man is a superior movie. Um, but I do think that the craftsmanship in that Astra is nothing to, nothing to slouch at either. Oh, yeah. Where's the boot button? I don't even think that... <laughs> I don't even think of the voiceover in Ed Astro when I think about it. I don't. I just think about the full experience. The, just the, but you think about it when you're watching it because ain't no fucking getting away from it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's booming on your channel. Yeah, it's funny, though, that Patrick and I share that opinion, even though this is an episode about First Man. Um, yeah, I don't have a problem with the voiceover whatsoever, and typically I would as well. Um, it just felt natural felt yeah i kind of didn't really course. notice it like i, yeah, I, I, I as it was going on like i, I guess after a while, a lot i was either. like but I, I but there there is especially like later on in the movie there, there is there is kind of a lot of voiceover in it but it's yeah. the it doesn't feel because it's not it's not over it's you know why it's not expositional for one thing which which is good so it's it not isn't. It's, it's not it's saying expositional like, about the character's feelings and they're slapping you in the fucking face with them that's what it's I'm as expositional say. as the voiceover in apocalypse now it 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 feels like a like a journal. It, it, and that's it feels, awesome. It feels like like an inner like a like a, a journal into somebody's heart who didn't. I mean, exist. Talk about a lot of voiceover. Watch Apocalypse Now, and that movie's flawless. I mean, I'm not saying it's on the level of Apocalypse Now, but I I don't. They're the I'm same not, things happening. That's also not, on our frame rate list, so we better get to that soon. I'm not anti voiceover as a rule at all. It just totally depends on how it's deployed. I thought. It was it bothered you. deployed poorly. And if they had done any in First Man, it would have completely fucking ruined the movie for me. So back to the film. It doesn't make sense. It wouldn't have made sense for Neil Armstrong's character either to have voiceover. That's not who he was. So they're not going to put voiceover in there. They're not going to give you a voice. You don't know if he had an internal voice or not? No, I'm sure he had an internal <laughs> voice. But it, well, it, no, some what, people no, have internal monologue and some people don't. What I'm well, saying, what is, I'm saying been- is based off the who we know that he was, very 
internal person, very quiet, very, in some way shut down. He got the job done. You know, they relied on him because of his skill set. So to then throw out a, a voiceover with his voice would have been like, this is the most Neil Armstrong has ever said. He never even said, you know what I mean? They would just have been making up words that he, he never said. Maybe he said, so that would make, totally wouldn't make sense for a character that doesn't exist. Um, I have no problem with it. All right. We're, we like agree, but for completely different reasons here. So I'm just going to move on. <laughs> that works, not, though. Not know. worth discussing. Um, well, I did very quickly uh, want to mention the couple mistakes they made in the film. Again, not Are you going to talk about the X-15 clouds? Because you should. Well, you can do that and then we can wrap because this episode has been going on for a while. All right. Um, I guess Jamie's done. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, no, just briefly, again, one of the th reasons I want to mention their mistakes is because there's so few of them. So it's an easy list to go through instead of talking about all the things they did such an amazing job with, which we've discussed. Um, I'll pass it to you for the clouds, but one thing about the X-15 that was done for dramatic effect, there's a couple of things in the X-15 that are not realistic, but again, it works well for what they're trying to do. Stop a cat. Um, one is they literally heated up the nose cone of it with like a freaking what do you call it like a uh, a torch um but that's happening when the aircraft is having kind of an uncontrolled ascent and in physics that actually only happens you only get that kind of friction on re-entry if you're re-entering too fast or if it's like the space shuttle or something so you would not see have seen incandescence on the nose cone on the way up um i think the cloud thing you're talking about is the altitude difference right he would have been so high above the clouds the whole time yeah, it was just it, it was just that, and this was not me being some sort of an X fifteen expert. It was something that was was written about when the movie came out that I noticed after seeing it again. Is that if he's one hundred twenty thousand feet up, if he's if he's above the envelope of the gravitational pull of the Earth, then uh, there's not going to be clouds outside his window. It's so far above that. Right, right, and then also. Um his reaction to, for example, being too close to the mountains, which I highly doubt that happened in that particular way. Again, this is sort of narrative, you know, storytelling, et cetera. Um, he, he did end up overshoot, way overshooting the entire base he was supposed to land on and had to land at an alternate airfield for sure. But when he pulls up on the stick in that particular scenario, I don't think that would have pulled the plane up. Like, I, I, I forget, you'd have to talk to a pilot exactly on what he should have done to avoid those mountains if that's what he was doing in that scene, but what he does in the scene is not accurate. Well, the, the plane um, didn't have enough lift surface to provide any kind of, like, frictional difference at that low of an altitude. It's like the SR-71, right? When you're flying it low, right. it's like basically un unmaneuverable. Yep. When you're flying it up in a very thin atmosphere, you can do whatever you want. Right, probably increasing thrust would have been what he would have done to clear something if he had to at that point. But again, because the stall, the stall limit is like super, super high. Right. Um, I know that, uh, Oh, there's a couple people that complained. So I think Chuck Yeager, I think it was Chuck Yeager who kind of complained or no, there was somebody on, it was somebody who had interviewed Armstrong before. And there was like a brief Fox news interview where he was saying, I interviewed Armstrong. He wasn't shy like that. He wasn't that introverted. Like he was a, you know, you could have a beer with him and he loved to make jokes and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, okay, again, it's like, yeah, they're, they're not trying to say this was how he was his entire freaking life, but they're trying to showcase that side of his personality. Um, and then of course the dumbest controversy ever. And I will call out any right wing person who wants to come on and argue with me. Cause like, I'm a Patriot. I'm a veteran. I love the American flag, but the fucking pundits that came out saying, 
this movie's unpatriotic. I cannot believe they did not show the planting of the American flag on the moon, just going off. And I'm like, if that's what you thought about this movie, you are completely missing the point. I mean, they had American flags on their uniforms. You could see the American flag on the moon. They certainly weren't trying to revise history or not show that at all. Um, but just it wasn't part of the timing that they had to show the moon landing, and they chose to not show that. I, I thought that was really, the point. Really the point was that this was for all mankind. For all mankind. The point, like this, started off as a Cold War thing. By the time the '60s got to 1969, this was. I mean, the world. 1968, the world was collapsing in itself. Like this, at this point, getting to the moon was it was was like almost like our species' way of finding redemption. You know. And this was obviously a patriotic act. This came out of Kennedy's speech. This came out of this like uh, unprecedented mobilization of forces and strategy, right? That the United States deployed in like a six or seven year period, basically. But at the end of the day, well, I guess a nine year period, um, at the end of the day, like this was uh, an achievement that when Neil Armstrong, you know, stepped onto the lunar surface, he said that this was for mankind. This was, this was not this was bigger than just the United States. So like that was an important thing that they had the flag with them. It was an important, obviously a hugely important accomplishment for the United States. But the point of the movie isn't the US won the space race. The point of the movie is that we got there. And the point of the movie really is that he got there. The point of the movie is that this character had this moment, you know? Oh yeah. People saying that probably most of them didn't watch it, wouldn't watch it. They were just spouting off everything that they had heard. They didn't, they don't or Trump shit. is fucking if, complaining, but can you imagine well, Trump watching well, this movie? If that's if that's what it takes, if you feeling like this needs to be American or that needs to validate some sense of patriotism in you, you've got other problems. Oh yeah, no, I totally agree. And again, from a film watching perspective, like you just missed the director's entire point, which was certainly yeah. not to shit on America at any yeah. at any point. Um, although I will say that. Um, it was nice that in a film that didn't really have the scope or time for it, they did include quite a bit, or at least the civil rights movement as it related to people complaining about NASA's budget and all that saying, we can't pay our bills, but Whitey's going to the moon. Like that was great that they, yeah. they could have, they could have totally left that out and the movie would have been none the lesser of a film. So I'm really glad that they chose to show a little bit of, about the strife in Vietnam and like what was going on in America in the late sixties, because that really puts things into context. Um, and back to, I'll, I'll wrap, but back to the previous point, I can't remember if it was Buzz or Armstrong uh, or Michael Collins, whose name always gets forgotten because he's kind of the third man, right? He stayed in orbit, but also a great guy. And had the scariest job of any human, I think, who was ever fucking, li- can you imagine that? He just l- orbited the moon alone, completely alone. And- and was he knew he was the only person that could have helped the other two astronauts if they got in trouble. He was their ride back to Earth. So I mean, a lot of responsibility. He was. But there were there were moments on that mission where he was on the other side of the moon, on the dark side of the lunar surface. So he was a a, a world away from the other two humans who were even within you know any you know reliable distance from him in terms of like radio frequency transmission let alone the fact that he couldn't communicate with them because there was no transfer, that you couldn't hear anybody on that side of the moon, right? So then he was also so incredibly incomprehensibly far away from everything back home. And this is in 1969. This is like not, I mean, this was, it's, I, I think, and that's why, Jamie, when you were talking about, Dan, Dan I'll shut up in a second, let me get back to what you're saying, but just briefly, because I, I want to bring this up. When you're talking about him and White looking at the moon in the backyard, like that to me says it all because that was, I mean, like, we all know what it's like to be in the backyard and to look up at the moon. 
And, but we all, but none of us on this podcast now have known what it was like to look up at the moon with humans never having been there before, right? These were people who didn't know what the consistency of the surface was. These were people who, upon touching down, talked about how deeply the treads had sunk into the to the earth, not not, not to literally not to the earth, into the lunar surface, that they went you know two inches deep into dust. They could have been liquid for all they knew. They had no clue what was waiting for them down there. That's how little they knew about it. And they're standing there on the surface of the earth, looking up at this thing that was completely unfathomable to them. And they and they made it. And they made it. It's just it's just astounding. Dan, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to say that. No, it is. I'll 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 leave you with two closing thoughts, and then I'll pass it off to Jamie. But um, the whole for all mankind thing. Um, I can't remember which of the three astronauts it was, but you know, after they were done with quarantine, uh, they went uh, they went for like a month long world tour of just touring major cities and getting paraded like they'd won the Super Bowl, you know, and everybody's coming out and and all and all these people from all the countries. And one of them said that a woman came up to him. And was it might have been in France? I can't remember, but she was so excited. And the thing the astronaut was surprised about is that she said, "Congratulations, we did it." And she wasn't an American; she was just another human. And I remember the astronaut talking about it and being struck by the fact that it was like, "Yeah, they didn't say like you Americans did it. It was we did it as a species. We made it to the moon." And it was like just such a moment for them to realize that they were representing the entire world, you know, that's just crazy, your entire planet. Um, and then uh, my last closing thought is uh, the other night we had a beautiful full moon coming up. It was a couple of nights ago and I was coming home from work and I decided that I was going to grab my binoculars and sit down on the block and watch the moon rise and, and take a look at it. And um, I remember that Neil Armstrong had answered when he had been asked by someone, what would you like people to think? like when they look up at the moon or, you know, about the mission, whatever. And he just said, um, of course, being very modest, he said, yeah, you know, the, or, or maybe he just said, well, what would you like to leave people with about your experience? And I think he said, um, well, just when you look up at the moon next, I'd like you to think about all of us that work so hard, you know, all the people that 400,000 people that were part of the Apollo 11 program that got us to the moon or maybe those collective programs. Um, and so I did just that, you know, I, I don't know why I'd never looked this up, but you can do this. You can go online and Google the, um, moon landing sites and it'll show you where Apollo 11 landed. And even with some decent binoculars, you don't have to have a telescope. You can line it up and figure it out. And I was able to find the exact spot. I mean, exact within, I'm sure it's, you know, a thousand miles wide, whatever I can see. Um, but I was able to look at the moon and think about those, those men up there walking around and it was just really profound. So yeah, I mean, hats off to Chazelle and everybody else involved in the production to really um, depict a moment that meant so much uh, to the whole world. And I just, last thing I want to say before we close is just like in terms of for all mankind, the technology that got us to the moon was technology that was designed to murder people 25 years earlier. And the, the legacy of the incredible dark cataclysm that was World War II like out of that came something so beautiful and so universal. And everybody likes to fixate on the fact that Werner von Braun obviously was the V2 rocket engineer. And that, that, that's hugely problematic because we had a Nazi basically, you know, a defecting Nazi designing our rocket program, which is pretty fucked up. But at the end of the day, we were using technology that was, you know, designed to make the world smaller and more deadly to blow our dreams wide open. And, and, and I think like what better 
what better way to do it than going to the moon, than, than traveling among the stars and then getting off of this world that we live in where we're trapped, you know, and, and, the, and, the, and, and, and in the middle of like civil rights struggles and the, and the Vietnam conflict and global, you know, economic crises and all of these incredible things that were happening at the time. And to like, for a moment, leave it behind and remember for that one second that there is more than that. That, that there are some fundamental truths about the human condition that um, before avarice and anger and prejudice, you know, are, there, are, are able to pervert it, that like that there are things that we all, we all know, we all hold true. And one of them is that like we can do it, you know, if we work together. And, and I just think it's such a testament to human ingenuity. And I think that this film likewise is such a testament to the magic of cinema. And it's such a testament to what happens when a group of people come together to do something kind of impossible. And to me, that moon landing sequence is, is an impossibility in film. I really feel like that, and we're not going to talk about it because we've got to wrap, but to me, that is a, it's just an astounding achievement that took impossibilities to create. And, uh, and, I, and I think anybody who watches that and doesn't have a, a lump in their throat is missing the point of everything. And the lump in your throat, what's great about this movie, the lump in your throat isn't coming from the realism. I'm not saying verisimilitude, people listening, the realism. Um, it's not coming from that. And it's not coming from just like the, you know, the booming soundtrack. It's coming from the journey of this character. And at the end of the day, this is a movie that is realistic and it's factual and it's really well made, but it's about a character that's totally believable from beginning to end, a very simple human being. And we look at our heroes as more than that. You know, we look at our, we look at the space program as something, I'm going to shut up soon, I know, but just briefly, we look at the space program as something incomprehensibly enormous, right? It is the, it is like the trajectory of the human condition in the 20th century. It was leading to this moment. And, and it's impossible to talk about Neil Armstrong without talking about this, just like everything that he stands for, everything that he's come to represent, everything that wasn't just this, you know, kid who was a, a flying ace who went on to, you know, be a test pilot and then went on to land on the moon, right? And what this movie does is it, it, it embraces all of the extraordinary, the extraordinaries of everything around him while using that to reflect back on how simple his story fundamentally is and how small his story actually is and how relatable his story actually is. And that is something that, no other art form can do. That is something that only film can do in this way. And I think that's why it's just, it's just an extraordinary achievement. And I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly glad that we got to see it. You're here. Amazing. Jamie, you got any closing thoughts? Nope. You guys said it. Thanks everyone for joining <laughs> us for this episode. And we'll be back with another one.